What's up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this incredible rip of TFTC. I sat down with Paolo Adroino from Bitfinex Tether, Hole Punch Keat. Incredible conversation. I'm very happy that Paolo and the Bitfinex and Tether and Hole Punch team is beginning to um, speak more publicly about what they're building because they're pretty cypherpunk. They're pretty badass. We dive in to everything in regards to Tether, the FUD around it, how... Uh, the treasury is managed, um, how Tether's created, what it's done for people in the emerging world, um, how they've integrated Lightning, what their plans are with Hole Punch, hardcore cypherpunks. This was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're right down the hall. I'm pointing to their, to their offices. I have a nice hole in my shirt. Um, Unchained just launched a trading desk. Uh, it's the best way to buy Bitcoin by far. You set up a two or three multi-sig vault, uh, and then you buy Bitcoin directly from their trading desk into your vault. It doesn't sit on an exchange. You don't have to get your wallets and produce an address and do all that stuff. You set up your vault. You buy Bitcoin via Unchained's trading desk, and it goes straight to your cold storage, your multi-sig cold storage. It's a beautiful thing. Best way to buy Bitcoin. I've done it. It's easy. They made it very easy. Uh, right now, it's only available in 31 states, so... If you are interested in leveraging the trading desk, uh, just check to make sure your state uh, is on the list of 31 states that it's available in. They're working on 50 states. Hope to have all 50 states soon. Um, yeah. Buy Bitcoin straight to cold storage. Use Unchained Trading Desk at unchained.com slash trading to check this out. If you're a high net worth individual, if you're a business, if you're uh, medium worth, lower end of the, uh, the economic ladder, and you want to buy Bitcoin, this is the most secure way to do it. You buy it, go straight to cold storage, unchained.com slash trading. This rip <laughs> was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. The people at YouTube don't like, don't like these ads. I'm sorry. We're going to have a different ad structure on YouTube soon. But Brains is sponsored this show. God, do we love them. If you're a miner, uh, you need to be leveraging Brains. They have Brains Pool, formerly Slush Pool. They have uh, Brains OS Plus firmware, which idiot proofs your mining operation. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you're an idiot. Go download Brains OS Plus firmware um, to, to make sure that you're stacking as many sats as possible and helping to elongate the life cycle of your ASIC. Uh, they have Brains Insights, uh, which is a massive, incredible dashboard with all the data that you'll need, calculators that you'll need for your mining operation. Uh, and then they have their blog. And some books. I, I wrote the foreword to a book with Daniel Frumpkin from Brains, the Bitcoin Mining Handbook. Go pick that up as well. Go to brains.com to check out all this. B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here to bring you all the mining stuff that you need. Whether you're an upstream oil and gas producer looking to leverage your excess natural gas. They're building the hash shots for you. They have a 50 kilowatt hash shot of which I am the owner of not one. I've got many of them now. Uh, and they're beast. It comes with the, the data center, uh, the generator, which is very important. These generators are purpose built for Bitcoin mining. Uh, and then if you need the ASICs as well, Upstream does some ASIC brokerage. So you can get it all in one package. Uh, if you're looking to leverage uh, your excess resources, whether it be Upstream at the well pad or if you're a utility company with some excess electricity some capacity 
uh, Upstream is here to build the infrastructure that you need. Go to upstreamdata.ca, tell them the TFTC sent you. Um, and they also, if you're an at-home miner, they have their black box, uh, which allows you to put some ASICs in it. You shut the box and all the sound, uh, not all of it, but a considerable amount of the sound goes away. You know, the annoying loud ASIC ring. It's right at your house. You can save your marriage. Go buy a black box. And again, you can buy a black box. Use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S. You're going to get 5% off. If you want to do a bundle, you can get a black box and ASICs. They'll hook that up. Go to shop.upstreamdata.ca to check that out. Last but not least, this was brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform with no KYC, no AML. It's peer-to-peer. Uh, relatively low rates in the lending market uh, compared to other lenders. And then on top of that, it leverages Bitcoin's multi-sig properties as well. What you do is you put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key. Your counterparty in the loan holds one key. And then Hoddle Hoddle holds the third key. And so... Your Bitcoin's locked up as collateral. In that escrow multi-sig wallet, you can't move the Bitcoin, obviously, since you only have one key in that two or three quorum. However, since you have one key, you have visibility into the escrow account so that you know your sats aren't being rehypothecated. And if you're paying back your your loan, your stablecoin loan, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Put sats up in collateral, get stablecoins in return, pay back the loan, get your sats back. Simple as that. On the other end, if you want to lend out stable coins that you have sitting around, you put them up in the marketplace, lend them out to somebody using Bitcoin as collateral, they pay you back what you gave them plus interest. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Lend.hodlhodl.com. No KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer, leverages multi-sig, uh, and lower rates. Lend.hodlhodl.com. Enjoy this episode with Paolo. It's a good one. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. You probably should be. You probably should be. Hello. Thank you for joining us while you're in the middle of a conference. Thank you, Martin, for having me. Well, I'm very excited. I mean, on TFTC, on this show, on Rabbit Hole Recap that I do with Matt O'Dell, we've talked for many years about Bitfinex, Tether, and more recently we started talking about Keat. Uh, You are the CTO of Bitfinex and Tether and the Chief Strategy Officer of Keat. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know you were at a conference. You're at a regulatory conference. It's got to be. Yeah, uh, um, it's got to be exciting for you. Look, I think that is uh, definitely. You know, we are hearing about uh, you know these Mika license developments. So uh, it's clear that the world is going towards a more regulated um, area for both exchanges and stable coins. So. That's uh, where we stand at, right? So we we need to be um, part of the um, uh, let's say um, discussions because Tether represents the biggest stablecoin, and uh, we have uh, been asked many questions. So uh, they want to hear directly from us. They want to understand 
uh, how Tether is being used. And I think that is quite interesting to me. You know, you know the thing that I'm more excited to talk about in, in this type of uh, conferences is like, you know, sometimes living in Europe and I, maybe also you, you might share the feeling also living in the US, but we hear a lot of people tending to think uh, about the use, how much a technology or a tool or a product is useful based on their personal experience. And that's it, right? But they don't understand that there is an entire world out there that might see things indifferently, right? The same thing applies to Bitcoin. But, you know, with, with, with Tether, I've been, and, and Bitcoin, I've been advocating a lot in Europe because I see a lot of um, closed minds here. And I hear a lot of closed minds here that don't understand that, you know, if you look at Turkey, if you look at Argentina, Venezuela, El Salvador and, uh, and Vietnam and so many places in, in Africa, so many places are actually in desperate need of these technologies and this new type of money. And, uh, you know, they, they are not used to have uh, perfect banking rails, if you could call them, although, you know, uh, perfect and banking should not be in the same sentence anyway. But, um, um, you know, it's, my role is trying to, you know, be the, the, the spokesperson for, for the industry, at least with, uh, uh, hopefully I'm, I'm representing uh, a, the good part of the ethos of the industry, trying to make um, log makers understanding where we are coming from and why what we are doing is so important. Yeah, and if things keep going the way they have been going in the last week, uh, the people of England might need... Uh, Bitcoin and Tether for banking purposes as well. But I think for the context of this conversation, for anybody who's new to the show, I mean, Bitfinex, you guys and, and Tether have been around for quite some time. Uh, and like I mentioned, you guys have <clears throat> drawn the ire of regulators around the world, particularly from here in the U.S. and, and New York State, and the NY, um, uh, what is it, the NYSFD, whatever it is, Um has come at you guys. Why don't we talk a, bit, a little bit about the history of Bitfinex and Tether and how you guys are set up from a regulatory framework and, and how many customers you guys serve around the world? Yeah, so, well, Bitfinex started in 2012 and Tether started in 2014. Uh, well, when both companies started, um, there was not much uh, low around cryptocurrencies and stable coins, even source stable coins, right? Stable coins were actually created with Tether. That was the first one. On Omni, and uh, That's correct. So um, Omni was first called uh, MasterCoin, um, was the, um, let's say, uh, the, the base layer for, for Tether, and that allowed it to grow uh, pretty quickly. Until then, Ethereum was added as, as support to Ethereum was added in the end of 2017. But uh, you know, with the big um, ICO boom, uh, we had in 2016 Poloniex heavily starting to rely on uh, uh, on Tether because and and then created massive arbitrage opportunity between Tethered enabled um, exchanges because then in order to move fiat from one exchange to another, you would take 35 days. Was, you know, the arbitrage opportunity was completely gone, was extremely capital intensive, but Tether completely streamlined that process, allowing 
um, USDT, so dollars, moving at the same pace on chain as Bitcoin, right? Especially using Bitcoin blockchain. So now exchanges usually credit Bitcoin um, within you know one block or three uh, three blocks, and um, and uh, they could do the same thing with Tether. So for the first time, basically in history, dollars could move at really high fast pace rather than waiting for international wires to settle. Um, so that moment drew a lot of attention to Tether, um, uh, especially at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, Tether became the first big, uh, well, the, the first big stablecoin to bypass uh, $1 billion in market cap and grew pretty quickly over 2018 to reach around $4 billion. Um, at that time, uh, really openly, we, we, we discussed that uh, a few times. We had some issues with banking. Banking was, with the ISO boom, banks became really, really well aware of crypto. They were extremely scared of crypto. And so they started shutting down accounts, bank accounts all over the place, especially you know, um, in, in, um, uh, for exchanges and and uh, and well, stable coins issues where there were basically only us that were that big. So that that was a challenging moment. But as as we are used to in both Bitfinex and Tether, we we keep our head down, we keep working, think uh, again openly. We we really should have done a much better job in PR uh, in in uh, making our community the general. Um, you know, Bitcoin community, crypto community at large, to understand what the hell was going on. Um, and, uh, you know, we we actually have been always shy uh, pub to communicate pub uh, with public. And, uh, you know, we come from the fact that we are all, you know, simple guys, all like people that uh, love to work and keep their head down. But uh, we realized that, uh, you know, we are big companies and we should... Uh, so now we realize, right? So in 2020, 21, we started realizing that, you know, we were actually really, really, really big companies and we should act more, you know, uh, publicly in the interest of, of um, you know, both our customers and wannabe customers or anyway, the, the community at large. So we started improving communication. You might see that changing a lot. So that that has changed a lot in the last, uh, you know, two years or so uh, with, uh, um, you know, um, we hired um, important person in the sector to help us to draft correctly our communication and explain that, you know, uh, this this industry um, is uh, is extremely challenging, right? So I compare it to when um, the first cars were, were uh, built and there was no, there were no streets and there was, was no manual on how to drive safely and were no uh, legal um, framework for operating a car and uh, making sure that you wouldn't you know, start, you know, uh, um, or you wouldn't uh, be a problem for society, right? So um, it's um, the the crypto industry is like that, right? So we are learning while we go, and there were there were no rules. Uh, there are new rules are coming up now, kind of um, now also the US and uh, and Europe are starting to draft. Um, lows and uh, that's something that is going to heavily change the industry I think in the next few years so uh, we need to act at like uh, big guys I would say um, so 
when I joined crypto was basically felt like exchanges felt like uh, e-commerce is for for bitcoins rather than trading platforms right so you had you could handle 10 orders per second if you were lucky now we are talking about hundreds of thousands of orders per second that are processed through matching engines in a single exchange imagine across all the exchanges so the level of complexity of what we are doing the size of the companies it, uh, they are ballooning and so that requires a pure structure so we have been you know to summarize we have been all always technologies focusing first on the product and uh, and, and and safety of, of our companies and then on communication but we should have taken communication a bit more let's say as part of our uh full strategy um or in the beginning yeah and like i said you guys have drawn the ire of not only regulators but I, I hate the word conspiracy theory because uh, I think it's a bastardized phrase, but uh, theorists out there who believe that that Tether is just creating the synthetic dollar market out of thin air in the Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency space and really driving prices. I mean, that's that's one of the big themes out there in, in TradFi is uh, we're not going to go near Bitcoin or quote-unquote crypto because Tether exists and it's just manipulating uh, prices. I mean, I've been following Tether for, for many years now. I'm, I'm on, I think I understand how these Tether are created, but I'd like to hear it from you. Are you guys just spinning up dollars out of the ether, putting them on these blockchains and then driving prices? What is the mechanism that actually brings Tether to the market, a, a tether token. Well, there is well, there is so much to talk about that. Of course, um, there is no way that tether creates um, USDT out of thin air, right? So, first of all, um, we have now a really um, big auditor that performs our attestation. Our attestation, by the way, we have been scrutinized heavily, scrutinized by two big um regulators in the us and by the way all our operations and documentation is still going to the new york attorney general on a quarterly basis right it's not like you know you snap a finger and, and you create money that's not how um tether works and ever worked so the tether mechanism is pretty pretty simple um a customer wants to acquire one hundred thousand usdt they send one hundred thousand dollars um to our bank account um the uh when the dollars are received and they are safe in the bank account uh 100,000 USDT minus fees are created and sent back on chain uh the process the opposite process is also true someone wants back their money they um send us um to our treasury wallet on chain 100,000 USDT and we send back a wire for the same amount minus fees. So then what happens with the money in the bank is that we are um, investing um, a portion of that money in what we call safe and liquid assets. At the moment, uh, you know, the history of Tether has been extremely interesting around that because uh, the reality of what we were doing has been uh, for from, you know, the uh, the tether truthers has been always twisted and in fact we have heard about Evergrande. there's so much time right people were or these guys were were suggesting that we were uh tether was investing in in and had 
80% exposure to Evergrande. Tether never held any uh, Evergrande uh, commercial paper or such, right? So, so anyone that has good experience with uh, with traditional financial markets knows that you couldn't even touch Evergrande with a 10-foot pole since a long time, right? So, um, and and why why the hell we should have done that, right? So the good thing about uh, stable coins is that you can take really um, the least risk possible and still earn a yield on a important monetary base, right? So uh, when you have like um, $50 billion in a bank account and you have like a, a return of 20, 30, 40 basis points, it's a lot of money, right? So it's not something negligible, it's a lot of money. And uh, so if you are able to keep the company operations lean like Tether does, then, you know, you don't need you don't need to take risk in order to to generate revenues and it's important that of course stable coins generate revenues because as you know we have also our issuance and redemption fee, redemption fees that are 10 basis points so that operating a healthy business allows us to maintain a really strong stable coin and you can uh, you you can see that you can um you can see the the strength of Tether because Tether did something that not even a bank or no bank in the world has ever done in the last two to two, three months, right? So after the Luna Terra crash, um, the 12th, 13th of May, uh, if I'm correct with the date. So there was a in, immense Tether FUD uh, created and uh, that was the beginning of the Tether shorter starting to pile up and the, you know, paid trolls um, sharing you know, all the most catastrophic news around Tether. But the, I, I think that I'm glad that in a way that happened because we could prove again that we did something that no bank could do. So we were able to pay um, $7 billion in two days, right? $7 billion at that time was around 10% of our reserves. And there is in the last 30 to 40 years, there is only one situation in which the banking industry, uh, a bank in the banking industry had to uh, pay out 10% of their assets was called Washington Mutual in 2008. And that went bankrupt. And Tether did that in two days without a blink of an eye. And then in over, in, in over one month, Tether was able to process around $20 billion. That was around 25% of its reserves. And we could have done much more than that. Well, the market stopped and now Tether started growing again. Um, and uh, our sec um, main competitor started to decrease widely. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that in the end, yes, we have now the, the biggest um, auditing firm doing attestation among the other stable coins. We, have, we are providing our information to the AUT still and all that, right? But there is no one else that has this uh, real world scenario that proves the risk management that we in fact had, right? We always said we have liquid assets. We have the best risk management in the world. And I can tell you one more, sorry if I'm, I'm, I'm rambling so much, but um, another interesting fact, right, is uh, that it was discovered that Tether is actually one of the few companies that uh, takes risk management really seriously, right? So we have been, uh, we had a lending program and we were kind of the only company, if not one of really, really few companies that was over collateralizing its loans, right? So we had um, 
between 130% to 150% collateral so that even when something hit the fan, we could completely unwind this position, but even um, in a, um, uh, having some le equity uh, left to return to the, um, to the borrower. So that speaks really highly about the quality of our risk management because you know, we didn't wait, we handled it, I would say perfectly, uh, always in touch with the customer. The customer in this situation was Celsius. And um, instead we have here been, we, we heard many companies that were considered heroes, right? Were considered mighty, perfect, without any issues, all part of uh, this uh, um, group of um, holy heroes of, of the industry. And they were all doing uncollateralized loans. So it's interesting to me that while during, you know, the second half of May, all these, uh, all these uh, uh, journals, newspapers were all looking at Tether, right? And they were all waiting for Tether to do something, you know, wrong or stupid, right? They were actually, Tether was, they were so focalized on Tether that they couldn't see that probably the actual issue of the industry, of the crypto industries was under their eyes. Also in some companies that were even public companies, right? So we are seeing some public companies um, that uh, um, went bankrupt and filed chapter 11 because they were doing uncollateralized loans. So the, the interesting fact after, in, in the aftermath is that Tether probably was not the bad guy uh, all along and we, had, we should have focused somewhere else our attention. Yeah, no, it was a massive stress test for the whole industry. And like you said, the fact that you guys were able to move $7 billion in two days is extremely uh, impressive. And that, I mean, that gets to another question too. I mean, well, first, like the risk management, like you just described in the industry uh, was proven to be extremely subpar, uh, particularly when it comes to the collateralization of the loans that were, were going out from many of these businesses. Uh, many blowups happen, but another sort of uh, theme and topic around that time, which I'm very interested to get your thoughts on, is the, um, the difference between a fully reserved dollar-to-dollar -dollar or equivalent uh, paper instrument-to-dollar uh, stablecoin like Tether versus these programmatic stablecoins like MakerDAO or Terra Luna. Um, which was one of those. What What are your thoughts on uh, the differences between the two models of stablecoin and the risk involved with both? So in, uh, I was in the in Paris again, actually in in April, and at the Blockchain Week in Paris, and I was talking to. That was the moment when uh, Terra and and um, Luna were at their peak, and Terra was considered this new beautiful instrument by the community, the m many people, influential people in the crypto community. And I was, I was asked by journalists what I was, wh what were my thoughts on, on, uh, on Terra. And I said, look, to me is a disaster waiting to happen because um, the way, so you cannot have a stable coin that is collateralized by, by another thing that the same guy created basically. Right. So Luna was collateralizing, Terra, because yes, there were some Bitcoin, but the majority was actually linked to Terra and, and the Anchor Protocol and so on. So to me, when I said that, I was, you know, um, many people 
were upset and said, well, you are just jealous because Tara is going to eat your, your lunch at, at Tether. And I said, well, you know, it's easy to be a stable coin until you are small because you can, you know, you can grow. And worst case scenario, if you have to handle liquidation in the market, the market can sustain a two to three to two billion dollar, three billion dollar liquidation. It's still possible in a market with good liquidity. But if you are an eighteen billion dollar that was Terra at its peak before you know everything started to crumble, then it's too much because you might need to be to liquidate half of your position. That is. 10 billion dollar right so there is too much for 10 billion dollar in a already stressed market is too much right so that was easy the more you grow the more you have to make sure that you are you all your backing are extremely solid and liquid right so and their backing was luna and was was bitcoin so it was kind of easy for people to borrow luna short luna sub, sub in order to start triggering liquidations and force the Terra Foundation to have to sell again Luna to stable coins in order to try to protect, protect their peg. And you enter in this vortex, in this cascading loop that will make, you know, the more people sell Luna, the Terra Foundation had to sell Luna. And then, you know, you, 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 it's a race to zero. So, of course, was Terra was um, in the aftermath was evident to now everyone that was extremely subject to attacks. If you think about it, it's exactly what uh, short sellers try to do with Tether, right? They started selling Tether subpar and um, they tried to cause a potential bank run, right? They said, okay, what happens if you think about the uh, financial aspects of, um, uh, of and the operativity, right? So if you sell Tether, let's say, 50 basis points below the um, uh, below the dollar. What happens is that um, market makers will buy these cheap tethers on exchanges, will send these cheap tethers to our platform, and will redeem for one dollar. They take one dollar, they send the dollar to the exchange again, they buy cheap tethers, and and so on and so forth. And this is how the seven billion and then eventually twenty billion in redemptions happen, right? So there is this enormous pressure. And the, you, you are, as a stable coin, you are forced to do your job, right? That is giving back the money, but in a really short amount of time. And so the hope of short sellers were, was that, in fact, we didn't have all the reserves that we said that we had. We didn't have the security, the liquidity that we said we had, right? So, well, well they, they, got, they got their proof now. But that in, if, in fact, we weren't so solid, you know, a stable coin that is not that doesn't have liquid assets would have the same issue of of Terra. So again, I'm glad that we were able to prove that not just with some paper that says that in fact we are solid, but with actual facts. Yeah, with actual market activity. Yeah, again, it's interesting. There's um, I've had people on this podcast again who are tradfi and are. Um, Bitcoin curious, but they stay out of the market because they're worried about tether manipulation. And it's always befuddled me, and I've always um, fallen short of being able to convince them. Like, hey, it seems like it's fully reserved. They've um, they've proven via audits that it's reserved, and they had this massive stress test over the summer. I don't know what else to tell these people. What, what would you tell these people that 
are are staying out of Bitcoin because they think tether manipulation is is running the market. I mean, I think that the the sad part is that thinking that Bitcoin has only value because tether is is extremely sad to me, right? So Bitcoin is this instrument that is is providing freedom to many, has you know a lot of uh, real world use cases. It's a new technology started 10 years ago. Well, a bit more now, um, but uh, is uh, 14 years ago and is, is actually changing the world for, for many populations that are, that need a lifeline because, you know, well, yes, GDP is, is going down uh, the, the bin. But uh, uh, if you think about Turkish Lira, they lost 70% of the, well, more than 70% of the value um, in, in 12 months, right? If, approaching to 80% now. And the same thing happened to, to the Argentinian pesos and then and, and Venezuela, their own currency has the same fate and so on. So thinking that uh, the only reason for Bitcoin to be to, to have a value is because some magic thing that happening in, in behind the scenes is, is, is quite sad. And we, in fact, proved um, that the uh, um, all the tethers, uh, USDT tokens, and the other tokens are, are in fact backed. Um, we have, we again are providing this information to the AG. Um, we have now um, BDO, that is a top five auditing firm, that is performing our attestations. I mean, we are, I mean, we are providing so much information out there that I, I don't even know what to tell these guys anymore because I felt like we, we passed from a situation where people were saying, well, guys, no, you know, uh, you are not giving us anything. And now we're giving so much information, but, and also even the commercial papers and I, I didn't mention, but you know, the, the commercial papers were this thing that, um, uh, we published in, uh, in 2021, right. With the first attestation we did, we published the fact that we have commercial papers and, um, um, so we, um, our portfolio was composed around 30 billion in commercial papers back in June, 2021. And the first thing that I can say is that commercial papers that we had were vastly, the vast majority was rated A1 and A2 from Standard & Poor's, right? So, um, extremely liquid, extremely safe, right? So then, um, yet people were, many people didn't know, um, what commercial papers were, right? So they were scared that there were something like, you know, some numbers written on the back of an envelope of a, you know, of a focaccia or a pizza, right? That is not actual what our commercial papers are. But yet, anyway, we, we took the decision publicly uh, to, to unwind our commercial paper um, position and move that part completely in... Um, in, um, in U.S. treasuries. So what happened in the last uh, 10 to 12 months is that at the end of uh, August, we had still, at uh, this August, we were able to unwind 30 billion of commercial papers and we had left only 200 million. And by the end of October, we'll have zero. So that is also proof that what we said about the liquidity of our commercial paper was in fact correct. And so we didn't lose any money. We just let them expire. We didn't lose any money on the commercial paper. Actually, we made interest on these commercial papers. And that is also proven by the fact that our equity at the end of, um, so at shareholder equity at the end of, um, um, of uh, June was $190 million. 
and it will be much higher uh, at the new attestation of um, in um, in um, in September, end of September. Of course, the interest rates are going up and so on. But is also in another interesting data point is that Tether never uh, shared a dividend, right? Issued a dividend. So all the interest, all the revenues that Tether have always generated are left in the company because we want to increase backing. And at this pace, we will have, you know, we will reach, um, we will create this big war chest that will help us to further collateralize um, the, the, um, the issued tokens. And that is an additional uh, proof of uh, the fact that, you know, for us is not all about money, is actually creating something that is solid for the ecosystem because we have a lot of long-term plans including hole punch and all this stuff. So we want, you know, we want to create solid products for the industry. And I think that um, overall, we, we, we prove that, you know, with, with all our uh, efforts, right? We are all, after so many years, we are since CEOs stepping down, right? So, you know, that are being in the space as long as us or even much less. And yet they are stepping down while we are still here fighting and, and uh, you know, pushing for, know what we believe is the good part of our industry yeah and that's what i mean i think you guys are bitcoiners at heart and that's how we can wrap up this tether stable coin part of the conversation is is i've always viewed so i've admittedly i've never used tether I've, i personally don't have um a use case for it uh I just stack bitcoin passively and hold bitcoin and i'm lucky to make um money that can sustain my life and i don't need to send it internationally it's just um my position personally uh living here in the united states and where i am in my personal life um can i, I can i say something to that sure um sorry if i that is exactly right so I, you you wouldn't need and most people in europe even don't need stable coins right so you have the perfect us dollar banking rail right so tether was tether never a tether business plan was never take over us banking that would be foolish of us of or anyone else trying but you know there is a desperate just there's just a desperate need outside the us right in, in the emerging markets developing countries of us dollars right they are a lifeline compared to their national currencies so basically that is tether business model right so we don't pretend everyone using us. We just want to help people that don't have access to a bank account. So there are 2 billion people that don't have banking. And yes, I would prefer personally, and everyone in our team would prefer them to, to use um, Bitcoins, right? So Bitcoin is much better than, than, than Tether, right? Tether is no Bitcoin. I always said that Tether is centralized. But the, the reality is that there are many people in the world that still are linked to the U.S. dollar. They need the U.S. dollar. They want the U.S. dollar. And they are all in, in the poorest countries in the world. So that's what Tether is for. Yeah. And, I mean, it's undeniable there is utility there. I mean, if you've if anybody's done, I mean, Matt Alborg, who's at BitRefill, um, formerly ran his own research arm called Useful Tulips. He went and did in-depth research with people in Venezuela, Argentina, Nigeria, um, asking how they interacted with Bitcoin. And a lot. And he found, just via his research of, of going out and actually asking people, is that, yeah, people love Bitcoin as a settlement layer. Um, and and the, 
novel utility it brought them in their lives. However, they couldn't stomach the the intraday, intramonth, intra-year price volatility. So uh, a lot of them would move part of their Bitcoin position into stablecoins with Tether being one of the largest ones. So again, sitting here in Austin, Texas, being an American citizen who is able to enjoy the, the stability of the dollar uh, just in my bank account, um, I don't have a use case for it, but it's undeniable that there are people in these emerging economies, like you described, that that do have a use case for this, which uh, you guys are providing. Um, but that's, again, uh, another thing that we've said on this show a lot, like Tether is inherently uh, unstable because it's dollar. The dollar is unstable at the end of the day in the long run. Um, and so that's how I wanted to transition this conversation is how do you view Tether's place in a longer um, in a longer term thinking of Bitcoin? Do you see it as this transitionary mechanism that eventually um, people are using it now, but at some point in the future, Bitcoin will be more widely adopted, more liquid, much larger market cap, and and you guys see it as sort of a stepping stone um, getting towards that hyper Bitcoinized world. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we we think that in the long term and we hope in the long term that is part of our work. We want Bitcoin to be adopted much more widely, right? So we believe that in the next 10 years, uh, Bitcoin um, installed monetary base will grow at least 10 times, if not more. And that's how Bitcoin will be also accepted and people much more by you know day-to-day uh live people right so you know if you are like uh, you have a grocery store um if you are like bus driver and so on you want you have want to have stability in life right there is so much uncertainty and you want to have stability but of course you know the the fiat currency stability well we have seen we are seeing now with the gbp and we have we are seeing that with all the other currencies but the dollar is still the reserve currency in the world but stability is actually people think that it, the dollar or the this this big uh, uh, you know uh, stable currencies are stable but the actually there is an in, intrinsic cost in holding them that is the inflation and so on right so uh, people are kind of making fun of uh, uh, Bitcoin detractors are making fun of Bitcoin because, you know, Bitcoin is still moving like uh, the U.S. stocks or Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. But, you know, I, I always, you know, make the comparison as I did, for example, for the El Salvador uh, Bitcoin adoption that people like it's unfair to expect that Bitcoin would be a replacement for all the currencies within just 14 years from its birth. Um, as is for, for El Salvador, you know, it's maybe two to five percent the actual adoption of Bitcoin in El Salvador, probably a little bit more now. But, um, you know, it's like pretending that the, after the first year or even 14 years of uh, the first car was produced by Ford, everyone in the US would have a car, right? At that back then, in the first years of the first cars being produced, you you know you would have bankers and lawyers everyone making fun of who was driving on a, uh, um, on a car saying and they were you know you had all these newspapers with titles like you know the um, cars will never replace horses horses are much more sustainable and and clean way of moving around the much faster and so on right so 
things take time, right? So pretending that, uh, you know, innovation can happen from one day to another is, is like even internet took a lot of time to grow behind the scenes to get where we are at, right? So it's, um, I think that in the long term, just, just to, to answer your question, in the long term, I will, I'm seeing people pricing their services in Bitcoin. That's what we need, right? Thinking first in, in Bitcoin terms rather than in, in, in dollar terms, because if you keep doing the conversion and if your mental based currency is dollar, of course, Tether will, will still be needed. But uh, if in the future we'll seeing more and more people actually thinking in, dollar, in Bitcoin terms, then is that will be the game changer. So, you know, we are not biased. It's not like we are hoping that, uh, you know, uh, things stay the same. We think that the utility of Tether is just um, being a mere servant of, of Bitcoin and it's finding these use cases um, around, uh, around the world. Um, but maybe eventually these use cases will disappear because just people will price everything in Bitcoin directly. And that would be probably a, a safer future to live in. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. It's going to take time. You know, the people who think that you're going to get mass adoption uh, immediately are uh, completely delusional. This is going to take time. Uh, it has taken time. Like you mentioned, we're almost 14 years in. You, everybody's anchoring to like, yeah, we're a decade in, but we're almost a decade and a half into this now as we move forward through time. And um, that's what's really exciting to see. So like you mentioned Hole Punch and Keat. So you guys are expanding the offering of, of products. And I, I really think what you guys are building uh, on Hole Punch, like Keat being one of those first products is, is very interesting because you guys are an exchange and uh, a stable coin company and, and getting into end-to-end uh, -end encrypted messaging. Uh, many people wouldn't think that would be your next foray into your product suite. So very interested to hear um, your plans with Hole Punch and, and Keat specifically and, and why you guys decided to build those products. Why was that the next uh, product in your suite? So interesting enough, uh, Hole Punch and Keat are, is in development since four to five years, right? So myself, I've always been, I, I'm a developer for since all my life and um, I've been always excited by um, peer-to-peer -peer technology, right? So, and, and, uh, and, and privacy. So my first public project was called Kernel Socks Bouncer, was a project that would allow you to uh, create, um, modify Linux and, and have, and in order to pipe all your connections through Socks 5 and proxies so that everything was inherently private uh, for in your Linux ecosystem, right? Completely transparent to your, to all your applications. And then I, I, I you know, I've worked a lot in, uh, in distributed technologies. Uh, I've been, um, one of the coolest projects I ever contributed to was uh, a research project for the university that was actually um, paid by, um, by a, a government that wanted to have this uh, massive and super reliable communication system for battlefields. Um, so um, I, I, I worked a lot on that for two to three years before moving to finance. And um, so always been excited by modularization, microservices, peer-to-peer -peer decentralized you know, applications and so on. And so when when I I started to you know work a lot in Bitfinex and Tether and see the potential of uh, 
of uh, of uh, you know Bitcoin as a as a technology as a currency and as a technology. I think that Bitcoin is dual, right? There is the blockchain and then there is the currency. So um, I, I started thinking, okay, but you know this um, uh, there is much more to you know freedom is is needs. You know, I come from, and sorry if I jump back and forth, I come from, you know, this, uh, all the movement of free, uh, of uh, Stallman, you know, with the um, Free Software Foundation. I always followed that, um, you know, the um, all the books of like uh, the Cathedral and Bazaar that teach you how to think about software, right? Software, like you can think about Microsoft and, and Windows as this cathedral that is in a way super complex and till a certain extent beautiful uh, to the external highs but is extremely if you touch anything it will mm, fall down right it's like actually is a cathedral must uh well is a castle of cards uh but a mask as a cathedral and um on the other side you had bazaars that are these you know thing that can keep changing shape and is being destroyed and rebuilt over the centuries and that's how you should build software, right? Software should be always built as something that is extremely modular, simple, does one simple thing and can change shape immediately without having to restructure it heavily. That's how we think about microservices. And, you know, the, one of the things that I brought to Bitfinex was that Bitfinex, when I joined in 2014, was a one single project on GitHub, one single modular uh, piece of uh, sorry one single monolithic point uh, piece of code and then um you know fast forward many years now we have more than 500 to almost 600 projects on github everyone is basically a simple module a microservice that interact uh with each other on a distributed hash table internal private distributed hash table so now it's you know people are looking at during the the, the craziest moment of volatility they're looking at bitfinex as the exchange that is always up right because it's built with actually we are doing our internal private peer-to-peer -peer network in order to make our platform uh, resistant so uh, a few years ago, I, I started talking a lot with another open source developer called Matthias Bus. Um, he's a great developer. He shared the passion about peer-to-peer -peer technology um, with me. And um, we started you know, chatting and thinking how we could, um, if we could build uh, and use basically BitTorrent as a base layer for many more things than what we, are, we were seeing BitTorrent used for, right? BitTorrent is... Um, is is kind of is a great technology has opened the eyes of many people when it comes to technology because it's um it is the only unstoppable way to share files right so we before BitTorrent and sure if uh, you recall that but there were many other solutions like LimeWire like uh, Idonki without Cademia and uh, all these other solutions like Gnutella and so on but they were always shut down and then BitTorrent BitTorrent came right so. The actual realization back then was why but BitTorrent is great, but is limited. It's limited to static files. What if we take that technology, we improve it, but and uh, we BitTorrent is basically composed by three things: distributed hash table, um, um, swarming. So the distributed hash table is the way is uh, basically um, a data structure that is distributed among different peers, different computers, uh, up to ten millions. Um, and helps to store 
the information, the indexes um, of all the content that is available on BitTorrent among all these peers. So you don't have a centralized index that says, okay, all these computers has all these files, but this, this information is kept, you know, distributed, decentralized across all these peers through the distributed hash table data structure. The second thing about, cool thing about um, BitTorrent was swarming. Swarming means that the more people were downloading or had a file on their computer, the faster it was getting for others to download it. Simple as that, right? And the third thing was hole punching. So one of the cool thing about BitTorrent is that if you remember Gnutello, LimeWire, you had to, in order to speed up the, the download, you had to go on your, and, and, and upload and service files. You had to go to, on your router at home, tweak the port, open the port publicly and route that to your own computer. I mean, that is something that normal people that are not techy they cannot do. But BitTorrent started to introduce hole punching. That is that thing that allowed two peers to establish a direct connection without a central server. And that is, that is the actual most important technology that we're using in hole punch. That is the name of the company and the main framework because that is actually removing the need of central servers uh, for, for many use cases. And so basically, um, again, um, finishing my thoughts, we, we decided that, uh, okay, BitTorrent is cool, but it's for static files. What if we could expand the use case to actual, you know, live streams, right? Everything in, in internet is live stream. So what we are doing now, this post podcast is creating a video, audio live streams and so on, right? So browsing is a live stream, using applications and everything is live stream. So what if we could reuse the same technology for, for everything that is not just static files? And that's how Whole Punch was born. And so in order to, to demonstrate to the world that uh, the potential of this technology, we wanted to create a, a simple use case, right? So everyone is used to Zoom or to Google Meet. What if we could recreate the very same thing without any single central server? That is the, the most important thing for me because, you know, we... We live in a world where we could actually get to Mars pretty soon. And yet we have this thing where people think that uh, in order for you and me to communicate, to have a voice or a video chat, we need to pass through someone else's server. Why should it be like that, right? So the technology is good enough so that our two computers can communicate directly without having to proxy our data through another people, person's server. So in general, right, so we are used to use a lot of the scam, the scam keyword in our industry, but I think that cloud is, is the ultimate scam, right? Is, um, is a big problem, is a big problem. And the more there is the geopolitical turmoil, we are going to see it as a problem, right? So we, we are used to store all our information on someone else's servers. And not now, so all these big tech companies are harvesting our data and that is, you know, I think a pretty obvious thing to, for me to say, but uh, I want to make people reason on the fact that um, the there is a big problem now with uh, with uh, also in Europe if they think about GDPR um, that is uh, an interesting law that force um, governments or that that assumes that the governments, public administration, and private companies in a certain country won't share automatically information 
uh, of citizens outside of the country boundaries uh, or store that information on other on country on on data centers on in other countries if you think about it, it makes sense right so i'm italian and why public administration information should uh, data uh, that is my data as a citizen should be stored on cloud somewhere else right and and then but and that is for public administration but think about all the private information photos how much content every single person in a specific country creates daily and yet all that information is stored on foreign data centers and you know things were cash until the last year but things are starting to turn and what if we are going to and god god forbids but what if we are going towards a much more difficult times in 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 terms of war and such right so we are going to see this data being weaponized not between people and people but between between countries and that is extremely scary right so a country that suddenly has a data center on its soil can say okay i will seize that all this information from this big tech company i will use it against someone else right that is i think quite you know i understand that is uh, too much orwellian for many but i don't like uh, i don't like to live in a in a in an uncertainty when it comes to my data and how this my data will be used right because you know these big tech companies are definitely has has pushed people to think that cloud was this friendly help right like this you know with with windows we had in, in back in time we had the clipboard like uh, that that smiley face in 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 the google um, in, in sorry in, in in microsoft word right but they is like computers uh, and so softwares that are cloud softwares or running our computers are not our friends they are they are doing whatever they can they 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 look like our friends they help us to to save to back up our data and so on but the ultimate goal is to get control over our data so we have to think twice on what we want to see in the future when it comes to you know uh, data storage and our storage so long story short with kit we wanted to prove that all this cloud infrastructure is useless and we wanted to do it providing a software that could provide much better higher quality video and audio calls to its users because if you don't route your traffic if you don't proxy your traffic through someone else's data center then you have you don't have to compress as that much your traffic right so you don't you the my traffic my video can go from my computer to your computer directly right and you know the interesting thing is that you know these people think about they think they tend to think that mobile phones are not powerful enough to do certain things and so that's why we need cloud we need to use the zoom needs data centers because you know somehow they add this additional magic to connectivity that is not true so mobile phones are extremely powerful they are more powerful probably than my computer they can do many things they can they they have a lot of storage and they can interact with the network peers that subsidize what they are missing right so that's the beauty bit right that is so with and the even more important fact is that the entire combination so all the, the mobile devices computers raspberries 
desktops combined in the world and also internet connections in the world are much, much, much more powerful than all the data centers available in the world, right? So we don't need data centers because our data center can be internet. And I'm not talking about some magic, you know, global state internet with like Filecon and stuff, right? So it's an internet where peers are just talking with the peers that they want to talk to, they need to talk to, right? So it's like complete decentralization as the web one was supposed to be when it was born. Yeah. Now, going back to your point, like, I, myself, as somebody who runs a website, runs a podcast, I've been been told I need to host those files in the cloud on somebody else's server because I, myself, don't have the... the, the bandwidth uh, in my hardware to do that and so are you saying like via hole punch and these peer-to-peer connections that, that and just proving that that may not be true yes let me give you your let me elaborate your exact example right so and that's how and why hole punch is super powerful remember that uh BitTorrent has this technology called swarming Right, so the more people were downloading um, a file, the faster it was get. So imagine that you are now hosting your um, um, uh, live show on your Raspberry Pi, and at home you have like a good line, but is an average line anyway, right? Of course, if you have 10 million viewers, it's obvious that your computer will never be able to offer the live show to everyone at the same time. But what if? Right. But the good thing about live streams if that is that if there is a little, little bit of latency, right, 200 milliseconds, 500 milliseconds, no one will care, right? So if, if, if I see your live stream, it's not we are on a call, right? So if I see it as a live stream, I can afford even one second latency. So what if we use the, uh, the swarming technology and say that, you know, you start streaming, but the more people are, the, the first people that are subscribed, right? So the more people are subscribed, they are start, they download chunk of your, of the data from you, right? And they are advertising to the rest of the network. Look, I have the say, I have these chunks, I have these chunks and so on. So suddenly they start resharing the data themselves. So you can do live streams to tens of millions of people in parallel without any central server with swarming. And that is not like some hypothetical technology that was proven by, by BitTorrent. So we are just taking that, improving it, and making it available for live streams. So we are going to also uh, prove that, uh, you know, the YouTube use case, people can do YouTube, OnlyFans, everything that they, is available now at home with their own bandwidth. This would be massive. And like you said, the, yes. the Orwellian state is beginning to encroach more and more. I mean, I can only imagine the the attacks that are going to be levied after the Nord Stream pipeline was bombed yesterday. Uh, you, I, I think it'd be naive not to think that um, critical internet infrastructure will will draw the attention of these nation states next. And um, it, it seems like that's the position we've been thrust in as a global society is all these nation states are warring against each other and you have these very hyper-centralized critical infrastructure, mainly internet infrastructure that's sitting out there like a sitting duck and, and we're tasked with this goal of uh, basically creating alternatives to that before it gets completely corrupted by, by these warring nations. Um, 
So how do you see Hole Punch playing out through here? So I know Bitfinex uh, or Tether's backing Synonym, um, John Carvalho and team, they're, they're leveraging some of this technology as well. That's uh, uh, a first to market team there leveraging this. You guys are building Keat. What has the reception to, to Hole Punch been since, uh, since people started playing around with it? So, so far we had around 100,000 downloads that for being a two, a two month uh, product and it is a lot to me. There is no mobile version yet. I cannot even, I cannot wait for the mobile version because I think it will grow massively. So uh, the, you know, the technology I think is, is exciting many. We are seeing a ton, a ton of people asking when they can get access to, you know, the SDK. Um, the beauty of Keat and Hole Punch is that will be fully open source, right? So there is a reason why it's not open source yet, is that as many times happen in our industry, uh, you release something, it gets cloned immediately, and uh, an altcoin gets put on top of it as um, a way to pay for the network. And I've been a heavy advocate of the fact that we don't need other tokens, right? So protocols, so in, in Web3 or DeFi, there was this narrative that was telling everyone a protocol cannot exist without a token. And the, one of the main drivers are actually what we wanted to do with Hole Punch was, um, you know, my, uh, myself, Matthias, we were always pushing for showing that the protocol can be massive without having a token. Because the we need to go back to the good old times when a product was used because it had utility running and what because you being used because someone was uh was making money out of it right so the the beauty of of um of kit and hole punch is that there will be all, all fully open source everyone can will be able to take it right and build whatever so hole punch will have a set of primitives for for um you know decentralized uh, storage Real data relaying. You can build VPNs. You can build search engines on that. You can do build file storage. You know, one of the applications that are is most exciting for me is like, imagine that your all your digital life, right? You can store it among peers with some sort of redundancy, and you pay like, um, you know, some a fraction, some some fraction of Bitcoin monthly in order to keep that safe and 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 backed up, right? And then, you know, you you go around, you, you travel, you cross countries and you, you arrive somewhere, you buy a new laptop and you have just to remember 24 words that are basically deriving your hole punch master key. And that will allow you to get back all your data from the peers, right? So your personal digital life can be as stored, as safe, as decentralized, as your, as secured in a decentralized form as your Bitcoins. So the fact that 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 is super cool, right? And you can with this technology, you can have a slider that can allow you to go back in history and go forward. And you can still you can see the changes of your history because this decentralized uh, data star structure is, is are extremely powerful to also have indexes, time based indexes, and so on. So I I don't want to bother you for with all this stuff, but I'm just getting excited with for all the things that we can build on top of it, and and not just us, right? The beauty of this technology is that is is basically is JavaScript um, and uh, HTML, right? So is React J, uh, React JS, uh, JS, React Native for mobile and JavaScript mainly. So also the way we design it is that 
JavaScript is the most used programming language when it comes to, you know, most used ever programming language. And you can find, so at this point, any web developer that they are the most easy to find in the world can build the centralized application because we solve all the complexity of peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, discovery, peer-to-peer -peer communication and storage and everything for them through the old Punch SDK. So suddenly every single developer can forget about the cost of infrastructure. You today would never build um, Zoom, a Zoom competitor, because you would need, you know that even if you have the best user interface, you still have to pay massively for the, the backend infrastructure. It would cost hundreds of millions per year. But we hope until all that cost goes away, right? So you can focus and the entire kit interface has been developed by one single front-end developer. <laughs> because every in, in six months, right? Or ev everything else is sold by Hole Punch. That's why we are so excited because it's like we are creating an even even playing playing field for developers, right? We don't control anything, right? It will be op open source, right? So other companies can build similar products, other products, and you know there is no way for us to control it or anyone to control it because it's just pure talking to each other. It's just it's just code. Yeah. I mean, and you brought it up too, which I'm really interested to dive into. And please do not apologize for, for getting deep into the weeds. I'm extremely fascinated and interested to learn how this works at a technical level. And I mean, but you mentioned it like you, like you can with your Bitcoin, you can recover your data from your peers using a seed phrase. So there's some form of private public key cryptography involved here. Where does this come out? come in and and so it's basically user authentication using keys correctly yes it's basically if we use public private public um keys in order to you know you generate your root key and we are adding now a sort of the id scheme where you can have your root key you have your keychain, so you can derive another like a sub key that is the key that you could use for chats. Then you have you can derive from the root key another key that you could use, for example, for you know storage and so on and so forth. And the cool cool thing is that you can derive sub keys of the chat uh, sub key, so like in a tree form. So you could uh, um, you could have multiple identities for the chats if you want to have multiple identities, for example, all part of the same root key. So, of course, you can go down, but you cannot derive up. And um, so simple cryptography, right? So it's not we are reinventing the wheel. It's like, um, you know, simple derivation path cryptography that has been used for a long time in crypto. But that is actually cool because then we it allows us to do like multi-device pairing. So you have your phone, your 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 laptop. We can allow you to, you know, um, uh, sync the two and all in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. Right now, you get, for example, you have in for your chat a derivation path. You can have two keys, and both of them can create an attestation to prove that they are part of the same, let's say, root key, and so that the, who is uh, in the chat with you can, you know, unify your contacts under one single um uh marty contact so that they you, they don't see multiple marties in the chat right so but it's it's kind of standard technique um and uh, but if we like simple things right so the, that because they we can we can mold them in in into um in 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 complex behaviors while remaining extremely simple in in, in the in the implementation yes and then so this gets to the whole key management ux 
quote unquote problem that many people point to at Bitcoin. People are like, oh, Bitcoin's great, but uh, at scale, nobody's going to want to hold their keys. What are what are your thoughts on um, individuals and the trend towards uh, the security of an individual's keys becoming um, more common? Like, do you think it becomes more common? Do you think this notion that uh, most people aren't going to control their keys is correct? How do you, how do you think this plays out moving forward? I think that um, it's important to have backup, easy backup schemes. So the one of the errors is forcing everyone to to be the most sophisticated um, user ever, right? So, for example, you could use uh, um, a ledger, uh, then you could use a ledger plus a multisig, so or multisig with ledgers and hardware keys, and you could uh, for for your seed you could use like a metal capsule. And uh, or you you could use a, um, a paper, right? So there are so many, even with people being able to manage keys, there are so many levels of security, right? So so is it's an endless battle. So I'm you know I like security. I use Cube or Cube's OS for as my operating system, and uh, of course um, uh, multisig plus uh, plus ledgers. But others might be happy just with. Um, you know, a ledger with a piece with a paper sheet and and so on, right? So, you need to create a, if we want to onboard uh, people from um, you know outside of the crypto industry, we need really to force um, the creation of user friendly backup schemes. Where you know these backup schemes can be and with a peer to peer technology is not that difficult, right? So you can imagine, like for example, your private keys can be backed up from you know on by 100 different peers there are really a tiny fraction of data right so it's it's super simple right so but you can have a wait with a password uh, or a 2fa to request that backup and, and start from scratch and get back all your data right so but that the user experience the the user friendliness of that experience is something that we are heavily working on both at Sidon, I, I know that john is a, man, a maniac on, on that part and also at uh, with hole punch. Yeah. No, it'll be very, it's very exciting because as we've been saying, like this is desperately needed. One can make a very strong argument that this iteration of the internet over the last 25 years uh, has been or will be looked back on as an anomaly where maybe we architected the the infrastructure of the applications being built on top of the internet stack um, as uh, unwise uh, and not well thought out. But as we move forward through time and we get smarter and get more comfortable with private public key cryptography, um, we're, we're devising schemes that, that make the internet more robust for the individual user. And Hole Punch definitely seems to be um, a solution. Uh, moving us towards that direction so it's incredibly encouraging to see this because again it's desperately needed i completely cannot agree more yeah and going back to like you don't you're spinning up hole punch as this protocol and a lot of people historically or last decade when you spin up a protocol everybody wants to throw a token on it um, and put it on the blockchain i mean i think that's one thing we should make clear hole punch is not a a blockchain it's just a different data structure um with states that you can um tap into and then um but you don't need to add a token 
that's inherent to the protocol, but you can add sats to it. You can inject Bitcoin via the Lightning Network into this, right? Because I saw uh, Keat, I, I believe it teased it out. Yesterday, you had a, a Keat sent a tweet out where somebody was sending sats um, to to another individual uh, via the messaging app. Um, so how how do you view Bitcoin playing into to the whole punch infrastructure and how does that uh, uh, integrate with with the system? Yeah, so payment systems are extremely important, right? So it is so we we see the integration with Lightning as complementary, right? So people companies can build services on top of whole punch and they might want to be paid for it. And that's completely fine, right? So I'm not saying that, um, you know, when I I talk about tokens shouldn't be part of the protocols is because protocols should exist without tokens unless it's, you know, Bitcoin and that is money, but it, everything else. So all the communication protocols, all these uh, interaction protocols should exist without the tokens. Then people should create use cases for for these protocols and then at that point you can create payment system payment layers so for example you can integrate whole punch and you, let's say that you provide trading signals right so you can sell trading signals through whole punch and then you you can say i want to be paid you know some satoshis every minute or every you know 10 minutes uh for for my service and then you 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 just generate an invoice constantly, and then people can pay for uh, can pay for that. And if people stop paying you, you stop servicing the data to them. So easy as that, right? So it's important for for Hole Punch to have payment primitives that are you know something that already exists is robust like uh, like network and um, and then can be integrated by software developers. So I'm I'm really excited about that because we prove that the blockchain is not a solution for everything, right? So I don't like the, all these uh, three to five years, we have been hearing all this blockchain saying, well, I can scale to gazillion transactions per second. I'm going to serve all the needs of humanity. The thing that I, I so first of all, blockchains cannot scale to that, right? So full stop. So the only way to scale to the human needs is being like Bitcoin, 10 minutes block time, so that you know worst case scenario even in war zones there is enough time to download one block and everything else should be a layer two that is not sharing a global state so what i don't like is layer ones that are that trying to be as fast as they can to to you know to to solve all the humanity needs and one thing that people forget and tend to forget in our industry is that yes crypto is cool but there are other industries that are growing fast there is artificial intelligence, there is robotics, and there is internet uh, of things. So if you unify the three things that I just said, you have robots, sentient robots in the next 10 to 15 years. And then you have, you have already fridges that are, that are you know, um, buying groceries for you if, if you are missing the milk, for example. We have light bulbs that are, um, that are you know, paying for their own electricity, at least prototypes. You have cars that are self-driving and so on. Imagine how many robots will be in our life in 10 to 20 years. And so all these robots will do machine-to-machine payments, will do, will do all the crazy things that we are doing, maybe. And so the amount of transactions we need 
we will need are much higher than any possible layer one solution will ever be able to 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 offer and there is there is no solution to that with global state right because global state is uh, is uh, um you know is is problematic because it requires to rely on the speed of light because with the speed of if you have a global consensus with a global state means that the majority of the nodes has to be informed about the change if you have 400 500 milliseconds block time that is almost impossible especially if you enter in a war zone then the connectivity might not be great then you start seeing all these blockchains falling apart because they cannot the state cannot be reliably shared across you know all the places in all the points of the earth so that's why I think that uh, is important to use blockchains only as a settlement layer for really important transactions. And, you know, Lightning Network, you know, you have channels, people send money through channels, and then eventually, you know, from time to time, this channel will be settled on chain. And yes. so that's what, uh, yeah, that's something that I like to bring also in Whole Punch as a an entire concept. Yeah, I went up there uh, to my bookshelf and I grabbed uh, my 21 computer, which... Uh... Uh, Balaji Srinvansan launched, I believe it was in 2015, 2016, but this was, I mean, the whole goal around this project was enabling the machine payable web, the machine to machine payable web. And uh, it's funny to think back, like, yes, maybe Balaji and the team at 21Co had the right idea, but they were just a bit too early. You need something like lightning that allows you to move these sats at light speed. Um, and have final settlement. This was doing it on chain. This is the weakest mining uh, computer in the world. Um, <laughs> but that idea has been around for a while. And it, would you argue it wasn't until Lightning came to the Bitcoin stack that it could actually be enabled? Exactly right. So the of course innovation takes time. Again, uh, we go back to the fact that uh, you know we cannot expect pretend that. Uh, that uh, you know, Bitcoin is a complete technology and can fulfill all the needs of humanity in just a few years, right? So things will be all built on top of, of Bitcoin, and the thing, for, most important thing is, is Lightning. So to me, is you know, it's obvious. If, if you, when I try to speak to not non-technical persons like that I meet in, in my day-to-day -day life, why, why I'm excited about Bitcoin is like um, I try to point them to the fact that. I'm not interested of what their fridge is going to buy for them or what of what they are paying for, if they are paying for a salad or for a steak or whatever, right? So if you have a global share state on layer one, you will see all that information that I shouldn't care about. But with Lightning is just channels, right? It's the same thing of hole punch. You are actually opening a channel that is a socket, that is a connection, only with the person that you need to deal with in that specific moment in time, right? So, so you can send one trillion transactions between you. We can send to each other trillions of transactions without affecting our neighbor, because that our neighbor should never know about those transactions. But uh, we shouldn't know about what our neighbor is doing as well, because that will be just clog our network, our computing power, our you know our life in general, right? So. It's it's the simplest of the concepts. Of course, Lightning took a little bit of time to be uh, created. There are some, of course, security aspects that were needed in, that was a need to be figured out. But uh, 
the underlying concept is, is, is obvious. You need channels, you need to, to segregate information just within the people, the peers that need that information in that specific moment in time. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Bitfinex was the first exchange to integrate Lightning, correct? We were the first big exchange to integrate Lightning. And now we are still the biggest node. We are, we crossed, I think, 1,000 Bitcoin on Lightning, on our Lightning node now. So we are actually one-fifth of the network uh, alone. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, yes. Well, with that. But that is important, right? So, sorry, well, I cut you off. Go ahead, but, go ahead, go ahead. Um, the, the reason why we grew so big that we wanted to prove, so when we first decided to go on with Lightning, we were sick and tired of all that narrative. Like was 2019, there was the narrative that Lightning was not secure for big transactions. So what we did, it was, you know, putting Lightning, um, installing Lightning, launching the node, and also opening with the selected parties, five Bitcoin channels. So we were, we said, look, you know, we are going to put up our money to show that this thing is, will work and is in fact safe. We are running our node since years, never had a problem. You don't know how many problems we have in running all the other blockchain nodes, but never had a problem with Lightning. Of course, we have watchtowers and so on, but it's, it's part of, um, uh, it was a learning curve for us, but uh, also proof that uh, Lightning was in fact safe and ready for scale. Yeah, and well, I'm very happy to be talking to you right now because you've been experimenting with it at scale for years. How has the Lightning Network progressed since you guys first spun up your node and, and started running it in 2019? What, what is the Lightning Network in 2022 compared to what it was when you first started interacting with it? Well, at Bitfinex, we are processing tens of thousands of transactions per month um, on Lightning Network. Also, we have created with Bitrefill the settlement mechanism so that our users can, that have um, BTC balance can actually buy gift cards directly from Bitrefill paying in, uh, in SATs. So that interaction is like, you know, blazing fast is... Uh, is uh, doesn't require like the fair settlements between us and the uh, Bitrefill. So that use case is by the, by the way is growing by by the month, right? Bitrefill is a usage is going through the roof. They are great team, great guys, great product. I mean, I think is one of the most wonderful products that we have in that was conceived in our industry and uh, um I'm, we, we have been experimenting a lot, uh, lightning uh, channels together. Uh, John Carvalho, Carvalho actually uh, came to us from, from Bitrefill. Uh, as you know, he's a big advocate also of, of lightning, right? So we have been discussing and, and, and growing our lightning use case together. So uh, John is now with Sinon is uh, creating this uh, way to buy and sell channels. Um, and so uh, Bitfinex will integrate that part into its product suite so that um, people can actually buy channels um, uh, directly through their Bitfinex uh, you know, um, interface. So we are adding all these use cases because we feel like uh, there is a lot of, of, of education still needed and people need to understand that the uh, Lightning Network is not scary but can be used like really simply in, in their day-to-day lives. Um, so we are seeing more and more wallets integrating with, uh, with, with, uh, lightning. Of course, there is El Salvador, um, make El Salvador kind of help, uh, a lot there because now we are seeing, we, the, the, there was this force, 
uh, request to the big corporates uh, like McDonald's and Starbucks in Asador to have to support uh, Lightning payments. So um, in a way, even, you know, that proved that even big corporates uh, can move fast and can actually adapt qu really quickly to technology. So uh, there is so much to do and so, so much to talk about, but uh, Lightning completely changed since the first time we started supporting it in, Bit in Bitfinex. Yeah. I mean, I use Lightning every day. I mean, there will be people streaming us sats over the Lightning Network as they listen to the show. Um, and it, I'm not sure if you know that, but uh, we in Lugano, uh, part of the Plan B movement, um, like uh, so uh, merchants will start accepting by, in the next days, actually, today we had the first test run. So they have a point of sale, a pause, that um, is uh, Lightning enabled. So now they can receive payments directly to their cashier, directly via Lightning. And there is the plan to deliver 1,000 of these point of sales in the next two months. <laughs> And then, and then we get to the chicken and the egg problem. Like, how do we get people spending at these merchants? Um, well, I, I think that, uh, you know, as a Bitcoiner, uh, that I hold Bitcoin, I, I prefer to keep in Bitcoin and then spend uh, part of the Bitcoins that uh, only when I need to, rather than have to, you know, try to balance my, my cash accounts and so on. So, and also... The, there is um, the difference between El Salvador and um, and Lugano, right? Is quite big. Lugano is in Switzerland, is a rich city, and Lugano can still use Bitcoin as a way to attract Bitcoiners that are, you know, there is a category of Bitcoiners that are wealthy people that could actually spend in Bitcoin because they have Bitcoins and they want to to feel the experience. And Bitcoin and Tether are supporter, right? So there there is a lot of liquidity in both of those currencies, and. Um, that is a way we want in Lugano to prove that who is starting to support Bitcoin um, is going to attract a new wave of, of customers that uh, want to spend directly in Bitcoin. And that could bring additional uh, revenues to, to the city and to the, the merchants. And in El Salvador, instead, it's different, right? So Bitcoin is a lifeline for, uh, for, for people. So we, we see that... Um, so in a way it's beautiful to see how two different uh, you know, countries and cities from two different like uh, wealth that have two different wealth standards are using the same technology for different purposes yeah no it's crazy how it feels like it's happening i mean there's a lot of people i mean i tweet this out pretty often i think many people out there are sleeping on the lightning network it still blows my mind that particularly over here in the United States, all the big funds that are getting in the space, like, oh, we're going Solana, we're going NFTs, we're doing all this crypto stuff. But it's like, oh, you guys are missing the actual signal, which is the build out of the Lightning Network and its maturity, which is seems to be hitting a breakaway speed at this point. Uh, the amount of companies that I'm coming across that are, are building products using the Lightning Network, what you guys are doing at Hole Punch and Keat and Bitfinex to integrate it. Like it, I think there is a lot of people around the world that are sleeping on, on what's happening uh, on the Bitcoin stack. Completely agreed. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're at a conference. I'm sure you've got dinners. You've got people to meet up with. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, Paolo, it's been, it's been great getting to sit down and speak with you. I've been, uh, as I mentioned, an observer of the products that you've been building. 
um, for many years now. And uh, Matt and I always call Bitfinex like the pirate ship of the industry. And it's always great to see you guys just uh, um, evading uh, evading the people that want to bring you down and, and just delivering value and just proving like, hey, we're, we're here because we like Bitcoin, uh, because we think it's an imperative uh, for the future, for humanity. And uh, like you said in the beginning, you guys have just been head down building for many years now. Um, and I'm very happy to see that uh, you guys are making an effort to be more public facing um, these days because I think um, people need to hear exactly what you guys are doing because you guys are on the cutting edge of of everything that's going on in Bitcoin and distributed systems. I really do appreciate that. And thank you very much, Marty, for having me. Uh, it has been a, re a real pleasure. Uh, pleasure was all mine. Is there anything on top of your mind that you want to leave the freaks with before we wrap up here? Um. Just um, give a try to Keat and you won't be um, uh, looted. You go to Keat.io, K-E-E-T.io. Very, uh, very easy domain name to remember. Um, yeah, I tested it. It works beautifully. So um, <laughs> go check it out. Paolo, go enjoy your night in Paris. Thank you again. Um, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, man. Have a good day. All right. Peace and love, freaks. Take care.